On episode 207 of the Happy Market Research Podcast, I'm chatting with Mitchell Acheson, U.S. immunology marketing researcher at one of the world's largest pharmaceutical firms. But first, a word from our sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Attest. Attest is a powerful, easy-to-use SaaS platform that connects businesses to over 100 million consumers in 80 countries on demand in just a few clicks. Ask your burning questions, select who you want to answer, view actual insights that help you grow your business. Join the hundreds of leading brands who already utilize the power of Attest's scalable intelligence platform. Contact Attest today at www.askattest.com slash happymr. That's A-S-K-A-T-T-E-S-T dot com slash happymr. Or find the link in the episode's show notes. Hey guys, this is Jamin Brazil. You're listening to the Happy Market Research Podcast. Today, my guest is Mitchell Acheson, Senior Associate in U.S. Immunology Marketing Research at a leading global pharmaceutical firm. He has spent his career in both retail and pharma. Mitchell, thanks so much for being on the Happy Market Research Podcast with me today. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Really looking forward to our conversation today. So tell me about your parents. What did they do and how has that informed your career? Yeah, thank you so much. So I'm really close with my parents, always have been. Um, so my mom is a teacher um, and my dad is an engineer, but he actually uh, got his MBA um, and the, the type of work that he's done over the course of his career is uh, very business focused. So he does bring an engineering analytical mindset to the what he does, uh, but he's always been like an operations manager or an operations supervisor. Um, so he's had that business background, um, and I've, I've looked up to my parents my whole life. I still do. Um, and I honestly, I think the, um, the, the biggest thing that kind of encouraged me to get to where I am today was probably my dad's background, his business mindset. And then here I am. I'm actually living out the dream. Uh, I just recently started a business with my mom, um, but also... Uh, on a day-to-day basis, working uh, in marketing within pharmaceuticals. So uh, it's been a journey, uh, but it's been a lot of fun in the process. So what area did you grow up in? So I actually, I, um, I've i kind of moved all over the place growing up. So uh, I was born in Seymour, Indiana, uh, before moving to South Carolina when I was a baby. Spent about seven years or so out in South Carolina, Loved it out there. Loved the weather. Loved the the people and everything about South Carolina. It's actually one of my favorite vacation destinations. Um, and then moved out to um, South Central California, uh, Hanford, California, which is just down the road from you, Jermaine. Um, and uh, spent about seven years there as well before moving to the frozen tundra of uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota after that. It's so funny, Hanford. I was literally just in Hanford, which is an hour away from where I live uh, in Fresno, California. Yeah. Um, this last weekend, my grandmother at 102 years old finally um, finally passed. And so it was this, you know, we had a lot of family flying in from, from all over. And it was a great experience for us. But, um, you know, celebrating her, her life, it's, it's interesting to me being in, in that particular ecosystem, because I think of Fresno as a, you know, it's a, whatever, half a million people, fifth largest city in California. 
you know, Hanford is this really small microcosm of um, a, a tight-knit community. And I, the downtown is really cool. The people that at least I came in contact with were friendly. Um, it was a, it was a, like a real special, it's a special, neat sort of, not Mayberry-esque, but maybe a little bit, right? Yeah. Sort of this where time is quite not caught up to um yeah to it absolutely yeah and first off i'm so sorry to hear that news uh i mean it's uh yeah it's all, always tough well 102 i don't yeah. think yeah no <laughs> she had a fantastic life I didn't, yeah i didn't mean to take that corner with it you know i will tell you this little anecdote about her um she is among actually probably the most positive yeah. person I'd ever met. She had a tremendous amount of uh, adversity in her life. You know, growing up, I mean, you think about all the uh, technological advances that she has undergone. I mean, she grew up and um, lived about half of her life in uh, Arkansas and then moved to um, California for the, in the hopes of a better life. The framework there was, you know, farm labor and, and just a lot of, a lot of, and a lot of, and primary earner responsibilities in the household. So just a ton of uh, what normal people would consider to be stress, but every day for her was the best day of her life. And I remember there's two like anecdotes that stand out to me. Um, the first one being she had a, she, I don't know when she slept, like nobody knew when she slept. And I actually asked her one time, grandma, when do you sleep or how much do you sleep? And she told me, Jamin, if I lay down too long, they're going to start throwing dirt on me. Yep. Which I thought was just like, yep. yeah, kind of very of the earth. And then the the second thing, which which happened about three years ago, uh, she, you know, ninety nine years old, coherent, doing great, um, but she lost the ability to swallow food. So they had to insert a, a feeding tube, uh, which of course sounds very sad. But you know, she kind of went through that whole process, and then um, after surgery, family comes in, checks on her. And um, my dad says, how are they treating you? She responds, they're treating me great and the food is fantastic. And of course, at this point, my father is absolutely convinced that early stage dementia has set in. And um, uh, he, he look, <laughs> she looks at him and goes, you don't understand, it actually smells really good. So, you know, she's always had this like bent on positivity and that's something that I've, you know, sort of aspired to. And I think that it's largely fallen, you know, a lot of that has fallen into the community that uh, she was a part of. Yeah. Yeah. Jamin. Yeah. That's, that's so, so cool to hear. And I can, I can uh, share in that. My, my grandparents have been very inspiring in that same way. And to your point about Hanford, you know, I think what's, what's cool about it um, you had mentioned kind of the, you know, the innocence, if you will, of, of Hanford and the, um, the ideal kind of simple lifestyle, uh, if you will. We very much experienced that when we lived out there. And I think it, it's probably something that, you know, that's what a lot of people aspire to have. And I know whenever we had first moved out there, I think the town might have been maybe, 30,000 ish. It may not have even been that. And I think now it's probably, you know, around maybe 50, 60,000, um, somewhere in that range. So yeah, obviously still community. not a, yeah, still not a big city, but at the same time that, um, you know, to nearly double your growth within a very short period of time, um, you know, just within the last basically decade or decade and a half, mm -hmm. uh, is pretty impressive. And I think it really speaks to the quality of the town and what the town is able to offer and just the, the community as a whole. 
you know, it's interesting as a market from a marketer marketing researchers lens, you know, almost 20% of the U S population lives in, um, what's classified as rural areas, right? Which is by far and away, I think it's over 90% of the, of the actual land in the U S. Um, and, and the, there is meaningful differences between the, you know, cities and, um, uh, uh, rural from from a cons yeah. consumption perspective, right? And I think that's one of the reasons why it's so important to make sure that market research has an adequate representation, so that you do have, you know, that that uh, clear view of the market perspective, which of course informs sample frames and and things like that. Yeah, and that's something too. Whenever I'm um, doing like my sampling uh, or like setting up screeners and things like that with my partner agencies, one of the first things that I always ask them or to actually more or less direct them to is to say, hey, at the end of the day, I want a very representative sample of the, the broader population of physicians or the broader population of patients or whatever the, the respondent base may be. I ultimately am going to make decisions off of that sample. So I want that sample to be representative of the population that I'm ultimately, um, you know, informing decisions on. Um, so it's absolutely crucial to ensure that, you know, in the, the grander universe of the population, we want to ensure that our sample is very representative of that. So tell me about one of the biggest challenges that you have overcome, uh, either personally or professionally. You know, it's funny. We actually just kind of started talking a little bit about it, uh, Jamin. We, um, you know, as I had mentioned, we had, I, we had moved around all the time growing up. Um, so I think if I were to kind of synthesize the uh, into just a couple of words of the, the biggest challenge, I think it's been dealing with the consistent transition um, that I've gone through within my life. Um, you know, I'd mentioned that all the states that I'd lived in actually went to three different high schools, three different states, three different parts of the country, three straight semesters. And that was a challenge. That was a very sensitive time in life um, to move uh, to the degree that I had done. Um, I really think just the consistent transition and constant moving, um, not really ever feeling like I had a home, so to speak, um, growing up was a, a real challenge. But um, to be frank, though, it, even though it's been a challenge, I usually look at challenges as, um, you know, to, to try and be optimistic about them, to say, hey, what can I learn from these challenges? Because I find that in those challenges, it seems, seems to be where you learn the most. So um, I really did grow a lot within that experience. Um, you know, ultimately, I think I was able to become very comfortable in uncomfortable situations, and that's helped me today. Um, and it's helped me to be very adaptable to dealing with different situations, dealing with different people, um, dealing with just different frames of mind and different ways of thinking. Um, and I think that's just being surrounded by so many different types of people in so many different parts of the, the country uh, and even the world for that matter, um, growing up has just really opened up my mind just to uh, be very empathetic to the other person or the audience um, and being able to, you know, from a business perspective, being able to craft a message towards that particular audience. I think that, I, so one of my favorite words is empathy. 
kindness, empathy, th- this, this idea that, um, you know, people, we naturally have a tendency to judge. So as, as we sort of divorce ourselves from that tendency and move in a situation where we're, you know, non-judgmental and more empathetic towards one another, or even from a brand to a consumer, you know, framework, then there's a connection that's able to be made that is, you know, I believe paramount for success, whether that's at the individual level, you know, you and me individually, or if you think about it, even at a, again, thinking about the relationship between brands and the empathy that they show towards our consumer group. I'm, you know, one of my, my go-to examples right now, I, I heard a, a talk recently from um, uh, one of the head researchers at McDonald's, and they were they were talking about how they have moved from a, um, you know, maximizing shareholder value through something, a con- an, an antiquated concept like share of wallet to part- seeing customers as partners. And so the way that they're illustrating the partnership is actually how can they maximize the wallet value of the purchase for the consumer, right? So, and, 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 then, and then communicating that at the point of sale yep. so that it literally translates to a, wow, I feel like McDonald's is helping me maximize my value, you know, when I, when I need that help at the register. So it's, and they have a bunch of tactics, of course, around that. But I, I just love those stories of how brands are, in fact, partnering with uh, the, their customers in order to improve the customer's life as opposed to steal from it. I couldn't agree more. And at the end of the day, we have to, um, as industries, regardless of, of the, the field that industry is in, we have to meet our customers where they are. And um, yes, we may seek to, to change and move attitudes and beliefs, but at the end of the day, um, we need to meet them where they are and, um, and seek to form our marketing and promotional efforts uh, in a manner that's uh, that's catering to their their wants and their needs and their desires, and that's all shaped by, um, you know, the the atmosphere that these um, customers, uh, whether it's the end consumer or not, that they're ultimately have been surrounded with. So, um, kind of getting back to that empathy piece, we need to uh, empathize with our customers and ultimately cater again to where they're at now. What are their wants? What are their needs? What are their desires? Um, that we can ultimately, um, as an organization that, that sells products or services, that we can fit those needs for those specific customers. Yeah, and the empathy, it's, it's interesting as it, it starts informing your overall behavior, right? Um, obviously, at a macro level, brand to consumer, but at a micro level, internally, marketing researchers have, we have internal customers, really, don't we? And Yes. And, you know, how can we help them, empower them, aid them in their decision-making processes to be data or customer-centric. Yes, that's exactly right. That is exactly right. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about a research project that you're most proud of. Yeah. So um, I've had multiple roles uh, in my career so far, um, all within analytics or market research. Um, But I think probably my my favorite project actually comes from um, uh, about two jobs ago. Uh, I actually worked in forecasting market research. Um, so within this role, we would essentially 
project out the demand and ultimately the revenue across each of the products within a given portfolio. Um, so every year we went through a process called strategic planning. And this is where, again, we project out the demand and the revenue for uh, anywhere between five and 10 years in the future. And this helps just to inform um, whatever organization it is, you know, hey, here is what you can expect from a, a general revenue perspective. And it can just inform whether or not there are any gaps in, in uh, revenue expectations. Um, so that way we can, you know, cater our strategy um, and investment strategy to, to whatever that may be. Um, so with this, we, we leverage a variety of secondary sources, syndicated sources, primary market research, um, and ultimately leverage our, our deep understanding of um, each of the respective areas that, that we are in. Um, and then we project out what that demand um, would be and what our, what our expectations are um, for each of the given products. Uh, and then we seek to gain alignment at uh, various levels of the company. And ultimately, um, the CEO is the one that signs off. And uh, it's through those efforts that we um, get a really uh, solid collaborative effort to understand the, the state of the business and where we're heading. That sounds awesome. <laughs> I mean, anytime. Re any yes, it's super cool. Very yeah, fun work. Any, I, I love the triangulation of tr to truth, right? Where you can take consumer self-reported data and then combine that with external data uh, in order to, yep. you know, really add to the story narrative on, in your case, predictive, you know, predicting what the market is going to do. Um, and that, that, that sort of, that sort of, empowerment is, you know, helps, I should say, the C-suite understand and frame the importance of those consumer opinions. That's exactly right. Yeah. And we try and um, as much as we can leverage all the, the data that we have in front of us. So that way that truly guides the, um, the decisions and the inputs into the forecast that we, that we always make. Uh, but I will say though, uh, one thing that we we often do caveat now, granted, we may not do this if there's a vice president in the room, but the, we always jokingly say the first rule of forecasting is that the forecast is always wrong. So so we can uh, <laughs> leverage all the tools in front of us. Uh, but at the end of the day, they're all projections. Um, and in many cases, they're pretty close. Uh, but we do have to realize that um, we're dealing with, in some cases, imperfect data. Um but we are making projections in the future that uh, that may or may not come true. What is your biggest market research challenge? You know, I think the um, there are many challenges, but I think probably the biggest one that comes to mind is probably communication synthesis. So as market researchers, we're used to dealing with a lot of data. Um, but I always have to remember that as a market researcher, um, I have to recognize that a majority of my audience, if not all of my audience, um, doesn't have two different things. It's one, they don't know the data to the degree that I do. It's because I spend as much time as what I do with the data. Um, uh, you know, I have a trained market research background. Um, so my audience just in most cases doesn't have that. But secondly, 
my audience doesn't have the time to digest all of the data that I'm used to dealing with. So um, I truly believe that my task as a market researcher um, is to make my market research and make the data matter to them. So again, uh, communication synthesis is key. So a couple of things that I really seek to do um, whenever I'm synthesizing um, whatever message it is that I'm communicating, uh, first off, I really seek to just be keep my message brief, concise, and to the point, and ultimately communicating the most important things that matter to my audience or to my customer, if you will, uh, that I'm talking to. Um, and then secondly, I try and communicate the so what of the research as opposed to just maybe messaging on data. So some of the things that I do for that specifically, um, whenever I'm communicating verbally in a, in a uh, you know, formal presentation and formal presentation, um, I'll, I'll tell you, I'm, uh, I'm one of the bigger data geeks out there. Um, but at the same time, when I'm communicating my message, I actually try to rarely communicate numbers. I try and speak in relative terms because at the end of the day, most of the people I'm talking to are not data junkies like what I may be. So I try and communicate, again, back to what we talked about earlier, empathy. I try and empathize with them and speak in a manner that's going to make sense to them. So I really try and speak in very relative terms. Um, and I try and I use numbers when needed, uh, but I try to avoid them if possible, uh, if I can deliver an even stronger message uh, when not using those numbers. And then whenever it comes to uh, written communication, um, one thing that I always do is I always pro provide an executive summary. Um, and within that, I present the most important information for my audience. It may be three bullet points. It may be five bullet points. But I try to keep it very concise to the point. And even in the executive summaries, I try and avoid the numbers because I'm just trying to communicate, again, the so what. Why does this matter to the audience? And what do they really need to know? And if they only had two minutes um, to digest what I'm communicating to them, I want them to, to take this because that's ultimately what's needed to, um, to make and shape decisions. So two things that really stand up out to me. One is your framework for using relative, uh, relative terms versus absolute. Yep. My go-to example for that is no one knows how much a six-cylinder car is worth on an absolute basis, but we all know it's worth more than a four-cylinder car, right? Yep. So the, the point is that human beings, when you give us an absolute number, it's really hard for us to digest and process that. But as soon as you can move it to a relative measure, then it becomes easy to say, holy crap, yeah, that's a lot better or a lot worse or a big problem or doing great. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, what I often will, even though I may have absolute numbers, I may present, you know, speaking of the relative piece, I may use ordinal references whenever I'm talking about um, the particular you know, attribute that I'm referencing. And. Um, even though the question that I may have asked in a particular survey, it may not have been like an ordinal question, so to speak, by nature, but I still may present it in an ordinal fashion. And I'll say, hey, relatively speaking, you know, our product is, um, you know, decently close to the, the leading product or maybe what 
um, a little bit ahead or something like that. But I'll, I'll speak in, in very relative terms as opposed to using, um, you know, such and such product is 2.3 percentage points ahead of the other product. And then that product is, you know, six percentage points ahead of the other product over there. I just think that presenting in relative terms, at least the audience that I'm dealing with on a day in and day out basis, that's how they prefer to receive information. Uh, and I've, I've always found that the, the discussions are much more rich and the, um, the takeaways are much more actionable um, whenever I, I present in those kinds of terms. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you're getting to the so what, of course, feeds that um, that perfectly because as soon as you you know get to the relative, this is bigger than that, then or yes. more valuable than that, then of course you have to deal with the what is the implication of that. And the second thing that you said that really stood out to me, and I think that we as market researchers need to hear this repeatedly, is that we need to have headline communications. So a good example of that is when I send a, a memo, you know, and I might have 10 hours invested in, um, in the memo itself, right, from a just gathering content and whatever, research, et cetera, or having a point of view. You know, I always have a, if you only have 30 seconds, just read this. Yep. And, and, that's the, and that's the three bullet points or, or whatever that synthesizes exactly what the overall points are. And if they decide they want more information or have time, then guess what? There's a bunch of documentation and et cetera, et cetera, right? That's exactly right. Yeah. I often will um, try and think to, about my, again, think about my audience and say, okay, what do they really need to know? And I will, um, you know, in the in the executive summary, I put the most important pieces. And then too, like if I'm framing a presentation, sometimes I may even just present like the three, like the three bullet points that I have on maybe an executive summary. Um, I, the, I, I try and just try and understand, okay, what does my audience need to know and how much do they need to know? Um, because there may be some other interesting points, but at the end of the day, if those are just interesting points, I probably don't need to waste any, any of my time and definitely don't need to waste my audience's time by communi communicating those points whenever they may not have any sort of business relevance. How will the market research space be different in the next five years? You know, I think one of the challenges that that we're facing in market research right now is um, attention spans in this day and age are um, in competition at a higher rate than ever before. So with the growth in technology and entertainment um, and things like that, um, you know, maybe a, a 15 minute survey, you may have some respondents that they spend an hour and a half working on um, because they're maybe messing on their phone or, or watching Netflix or something like that while they're doing it. So you have to sometimes question the, the reliability of that data. There's also, um, of course, unfortunately, fraudulent survey techniques, um, such as bots that are, uh, you know, unfortunately becoming more prevalent in this day and age. And at the end of the day, um, these types of things, those are just a couple of, exa of examples, they can lead to you know, poor or in some cases unreliable data uh, quality within the, the research that we're conducting. And 
Uh, and truly, when I think of bad data, I think of bad data as bad insights. And um, bad insights can ultimately lead to, to bad decisions that are made uh, for our customers. So, um, but meanwhile, um, big, you know, quote unquote, big data, behavioral data um, is becoming more and more available. Um, and it's increasing within its look back history. So when I think about the difference in five years, I think the reliance on that big behavioral data um, will increase even more significantly in the future. Um, and it not only allows us to just analyze that behavioral data in and of itself, but what's cool is we can then also link it back to attitude and belief data where we can truly understand the relationship and, and the correlation that attitudes and beliefs actually have with behavior, which I think is really exciting uh, for us as market researchers and analytics professionals. Yeah, it's so funny. You, so I, you're, you know, you're bringing up some interesting points. Uh, one, centric to data quality, but you're attacking it from two different points of view, right? One is the researcher's responsibility to consider the yeah. uh, research participant or the respondent or the other human beings, right, that are going to take the 15 to 20 minutes. And and there's a, I've read a lot on uh, maximum attention spans. When I speak, I have a rule, which is I have to earn the consumer's or the listener's attention every 20 seconds. So that creates a tremendous yeah. burden around, you know, the content that I'm, I'm planning on presenting. And, and I think in, in research, you know, we have not yet completely moved away from or even materially moved away from the 20-minute survey. Um, there's a, but, but if you look at the rest of, you know, the entertainment industry is a great, I think, canary in the coal mine. There is a book written by, and I might be misremembering, but I think it was Neil Postman, Amusing Ourselves to Death. And the, the, the context there is that things, you know, the the space of entertainment is, you know, all about faster. So, you know, hit them, hit them, hit them, hit them, hit us, hit us. And so attention spans are just decreasing overall. And so, and on top of it, you know, you have so many things, notifications on your phone, right. Or what, or kids or whatever that are now interrupting your, um, your time. So, we just really, need, as researchers, need to take a step back and and assess the survey instruments that we're leveraging. To and then and then the second part of of it, which I think is honestly one of the, if not the biggest problem or concern of mine in 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 research right now, and that is who's taking the surveys. I mean, in I know of one project this last week that was fulfilled uh, for. Th- uh, a CPI uh, or cost per interview of $3.75 among CEOs. And it was an 18 minute survey. And so I, I just kind of yes. pull back and I'm like, gosh, does that, you know, what CEO do I know that would take an 18 minute survey, yep. let alone f- for no money? Right. So that it's just, you really have to start applying our common sense factor. Now, we don't even need spidey sense here. 
in order to say, is this real? Because we want it to be real as researchers. And I think that we are willing to turn a blind eye to both of those facts saying, oh, well, I got my completes. And we just need to be honest with ourselves when we're looking through this lens of would I take the survey? Would my kids, would, my, would the target audience take the survey? And would they take the survey for that much money? Yes. And it ultimately gets back to what we talked about earlier, too, when we think about sampling. And if we were, let's say we were able to get respondents for that, um, albeit there probably wouldn't be that many CEOs out there who would be willing to, as you mentioned, take an 18-minute survey for nothing. Um, at the end of the day, if we did get some respondents, would they truly be representative of the grander population? Um, so I'd even probably question the, the reliability of the data that we'd even have as to whether or not that can be applied to the population as well. What are the three characteristics of an all-star employee? You know, I think that um, for me, the... The first thing that, and probably the most important thing, at least for me, that comes to mind, I think is an overall passion for the customer, a capital C customer, if you will. Um, because at the end of the day, we need to understand that regardless of the industry, um, that there's ultimately someone on the other end of our product or service that we're ultimately selling um, who benefits from that product or service. Um, and I think an all-star employee in general, um, again, regardless of the industry or the product or service, just develops a, an excitement and a passion um, for the work that they do that ultimately influences that customer. You know, I always even think about the, um, and, you know, Fortunately or unfortunately, my girlfriend actually hates it when I do this, but I critique the, the service that I get at, at restaurants. Um, and it's not because I'm like trying to be critical of that particular person, but I truly am looking at, okay, does this person or does this company, does this, this restaurant or whatever it is, regardless of the service, do they understand um, the customer and are they seeking to fill the gaps for the customer, whether it be good service or whether it be a good product. Um, that's something that I've always found um, the, the great employees separating from the good employees is just an overall passion for the end customer in mind. So that's the first thing. Um, the second thing we've talked about a little bit, um, but it's communication. It's knowing your audience. What do they need to know? How much do they need to know? And at the end of the day, as, especially as market researchers, we need to communicate and care our message in a manner that is efficient and effective to deliver the point that we're trying to make. Because we talked about attention spans just a moment ago. I know we were talking about surveys, but attention spans are tight within the marketplace. We've got meetings that we've got to run to. We only have a limited capacity of things that we can um, think about and process. So I want to make sure that I'm delivering a concise, effective message that's going to get the, the point across to my audience. And the last thing um, that I think is a, a characteristic of a, an all-star employee is prioritization. So my, my boss always tells me that um, within our organization, we want to focus on the most important things that we know the least about. 
So what I try and do with that, I try and use that as a filter uh, in terms of keeping my eye on the most important things that are necessary to moving the business forward. I have not heard it said exactly like that, but I love all three of those things. Um, so we've added a new question to the discussion guide and I'm really excited about this really for two reasons. One is I can't wait to hear your answer to it. And the second thing is I think it's actually something that we as, um, people should, should actually have. And if we employ sort of this, this thing that this, what we're going to be talking about momentarily, then it will help us as humans um, do just a little bit better or maybe to your earlier point, yeah. help prioritize. And, um, and, that, and so that is, what is your motto? So my motto, and I think about this all the time, um, I think about it in the workplace, I think about it in um, the personal space, uh, but my motto is to uh, don't focus on moving the pebbles at your feet when there are boulders that stand in the way of your journey. And what I mean by that is there's going to be um, low-hanging fruit, if you will, or maybe small things that um, may distract you from ultimately what you're trying to do. But we have to recognize there's big barriers that stand in the way of us and our customers. There's big problems that we have to solve. Let's spend our time and energy and mental capacity focusing on what those big barriers are. To get back to the motto, the big boulders, what are those? Let's not spend the time moving those pebbles that are at our feet, but let's really focus on addressing the boulders, addressing the big barriers that are standing between us and our customers. And ultimately, as we've talked about several times, filling the gaps, filling the needs, filling the wants, that our customers are ultimately expecting out of us in the products and the services that we ultimately deliver. That's great. And it also has this um, implication at, at like a day-to-day -day level, right? Where if, you know, getting back to the service being bad at a restaurant, you know, that's such a pebble in context of potentially outsized issues that of maybe self-awareness that are holding an individual back. That's exactly right. And, you know, when I, um, one thing that I do just on a very practical level every single week, um, the very first thing that I do when I, when I come into work on Mondays is I develop a prioritization list. I say, what are the things that I need to get right this week? And I have a list, I have only have three slots that I can actually put something in. So I really have to prioritize the things that I need to get right. And then I have a second section. What are the things that I need to get done? And then I can put three things in there as well. So these things I just, I don't need to spend as much mental capacity on. Yes, they need to get done. They are tasks I need to complete. But at the end of the day, being right on those tasks are not nearly as crucial as those that go into my first bucket. And then beyond that, I've got an unlimited list of low priority tasks, items and uh, and projects and tasks that I just don't need to spend nearly as much time on and that aren't mission critical to, um, to the vision that we're ultimately out to achieve. My guest today has been Mitchell Atchison. Thank you, Mitchell, for joining me on the Happy Market Research Podcast.
Absolutely. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it and really enjoyed our conversation. Yeah, so did I. And to all of you who are listening, if you would please, please, please take the time to screenshot this episode, share it on LinkedIn, Twitter, the platform of your choice. As always, your reviews are greatly appreciated. I hope you have a fantastic day. Thanks. This episode is brought to you by Attest. Attest is a powerful, easy-to-use SaaS platform that connects businesses to over 100 million consumers in 80 countries on demand in just a few clicks. Ask your burning questions, select who you want to answer, view actionable insights that help you grow your business. Join the hundreds of leading brands who already utilize the power of Attest's scalable intelligence platform. Contact Attest today at www.askattest.com slash happymr. That's A-S-K-A-T-T-E-S-T dot com slash happymr or find the link in the episode's show notes.